Good morning. Get situated here, maybe. Well, first I would like to just say uh, many of you have been praying for our house to be sold and one to be found, and that prayer has been answered, and we are very very thankful for that, and I do appreciate your prayers. So <clears throat> We are uh, anxiously looking forward to, uh, to the move up here in Topeka. Well, I thought before I get into the text and the, the lesson this morning, I thought I'd tell you just a little bit about myself. Um, fairly new to lion and lamb, actually probably pretty new to lion and lamb, and uh, I know uh, some of you better than others, but uh, I just thought I'd share a little bit of my testimony, the abbreviated version. Um, I grew up uh, in a Christian home here in this area. Uh, I had a mother and a father that uh, took me to church and uh, uh, taught me about salvation, and so I have a very good heritage. Uh, As a small child in front of uh, our furnace on the old hardwood floor of our old farmhouse. Uh, as a very young child, I, I realized I was a sinner, and I realized my need for a Savior. And um, as time went on, probably my junior high and high school years, I realized that uh, faith was much more than just about being saved, uh, that there was, a, there was a journey involved. There was a response to the salvation that Christ had given me and uh, began to... <clears throat> um, uh, look at my faith a little bit more seriously. Uh, it wasn't, though, until in college, and a very poignant moment in college happened. And those of you who have gone off to college and uh, uh, moved out of the house, maybe you've experienced this. For me, it was a very, a very, uh, like I say, uh, poignant moment. That first night in the good now or good no, depending on how you pronounce it, at Hall in Manhattan, going to K-State, and I'm sitting in my dorm room, and all of a sudden, I'm there by myself. My, my roommate had went out to Aggieville, and I'm just sitting there, and I realized, I'm kind of alone here. <laughs> you know, there's no farm animals, there's no brothers and sisters, there's no mom and dad. And I, it, was a, it was a moment in my life that um, uh, it was a very difficult few, few weeks uh, adjusting to that. Uh, certainly had a newfound freedom, uh, but also all of a sudden I realized my faith is what was going to... Um, uh, moved me along on my journey and not my parents' faith anymore. So uh, I, through that time, <clears throat> or shortly, probably a couple weeks after I was in college, I had a visit from a uh, member of Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, just a fellow student invited me to one of their meetings. And uh, long story short, went to the din- uh, Christmas conference in Dallas, Texas. I don't know if any of, you've ever, any of you have ever been to a Campus Crusade Christmas conference, but it was quite an experience uh, there in 1984, and uh, I will never forget, uh, I've really never heard of him since, but his name was Dan Hayes, and he was a speaker for Campus Crusade for Christ, and he gave a message about being old, rich, and mediocre. And basically, <laughs> the, the line is, if you want to be old, rich, and mediocre, you know, just kind of move along the flow in America, and you're going to be in pretty good shape, you know. But his, of course, challenge was, there's more to life than just being old, rich, and mediocre. And that is a, another poignant moment in my journey of faith. Um, and then I would say about, you know, we got married, had kids, you know, and kind of started going through life, uh, as many of you are. And I'd say about seven, eight years ago, um, the Lord began moving in my heart again that uh, uh, this faith had become, my faith had become a bit, oh, I don't know, stagnant maybe, or just 
commonplace, you know, and just continued to challenge me and um, continues to this day. And that brings me to Lion and Lamb <laughs> in a very quick, quick way. And I just want to say um, that several things have stuck out uh, about this gathering, about this fellowship, and that is the authenticity of the people, um, the biblical authority, the place where the Bible was placed, and um, your, our desire to, to seek truth and not just numbers and people. And uh, not that those aren't important as well, but uh, shouldn't be outside of the seeking of truth. And I, I just want to say we have really enjoyed our time here and look forward to many, many more years. So that's me <laughs> in a nutshell. <laughs> my name's Randall, by the way. <laughs> I didn't even mention my name, did I? It's kind of backwards, wasn't it? All right. Well, let's, let's move on to the text. And the text for today is 1 Samuel chapter 1. 1 Samuel chapter 1. And, um, you know, we look at the Old Testament and uh, we talk about old and new. And in our culture today, sometimes old is bad and new is good. And, of course, that's not the case at all with the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's the First Testament and the Second Testament. It's one whole divided in two parts. And uh, studying the Old Testament, uh, you know, Walter Kaiser, I don't know if you've read any Walter Kaiser. He's an Old Testament theologian, used to be at Trinity, I believe, now somewhere in Phoenix. Uh, has summarized that there's about 300 different direct quotations of the Old Testament in the New Testament. So before we can really understand the New Testament, we really have to have a good grasp on the Old Testament. And I know as growing up in the church, you know, you get the main stories and whatnot, but there's so much, there's so many rich stories and uh, teachings in the Old Testament. And uh, so I I really enjoy digging into some of those, and we're going to do that uh, today. So before we uh, read First uh, Samuel, though, let's let's get up to the point where what is happening in the context uh, of the nation of Israel, because uh, I think it's important to the storyline. Uh, we've been talking, uh, Mike has in the book of Genesis and the creation story, and then of course from that we have Noah's flood, and then after Noah's flood we move on to uh, you know the ec- the great Exodus uh, with Moses and the nation of Israel comes out of Egypt. Um, and then the, story, the book of Joshua, we see the great conquests of the promised land, and we see how they almost conquer the enemy. They come pretty close, uh, except they fail to drive out some of the Canaanites and, and other places. But things are looking pretty good in Judges. If, as I read the Old Testament, it doesn't get much better than the book, or not Judges, excuse me, <laughs> Joshua. <laughs> things really turn in Judges. <laughs> Joshua. Things are looking pretty good in Joshua. About as good as it, I think it, it probably does for the nation of Israel. But then we hit the book of Judges. And um, as far as the time frame, depending on your view of when the Exodus happened, we're probably around the 1200 B.C. time frame when Judges starts and around 1000 B.C. when Judges ends, ends. And the time of the Judges, of course, is a time of a rise and a fall. God will rise up a leader and the people rebel and uh, really do what's right in their own eye. Um, there's just some horrific times in the times of the judges. And that is the setting of 1 Samuel. The, fir- the setting of 1 Samuel is at the end of the time of the judges. Um, Samuel himself uh, is a judge, a priest, and a prophet. He, he uh, fulfills each of those roles. 
And so this is a time in the nation of Israel where basically Israel has, has really rejected God and they are doing what's right in their own eyes. Uh, Judges, the book of Judges, ends with this phrase. Uh, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's really the, the setting of this story that we're going to look at today is we've got a nation that has, has, has really rejected their God, their king, God, in a theocracy, and uh, they are eventually going to look for another king, and they're going to look for the kings among the, the, the realms of man. And if I would, were to title the whole book of 1 Samuel, I would call it The Throne of Man Begins, because it really is the beginning of the, a, uh, a kingdom where man is the king rather than God being the king, at least from man's perspective. God, of course, is always king in an ultimate perspective. Um, 1 Samuel, originally, it was written, uh, it was one book in the Hebrew. It wasn't until the Septuagint. The, the Septuagint's a Greek uh, version of the Old Testament that they, they divided it. Samuel probably wrote most of 1 Samuel, may not have written the, the later part of 1 Samuel. Um, and uh, it, is a, it is a story of where you find the stories of Saul. It's where you find the stories of David, at least the first part of David's reign. So... Let's turn now to 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 20. Now there was a certain man from Ramatham Zophim, we'll call it, from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jerohoam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, an Ephraimite, Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Paniah. And Paniah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Paniah his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. So she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep, and why do you not eat, and why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat of the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, great, she, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son... Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. Now it came about as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart, only her lips were, were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. <clears throat> kind of interesting. But <laughs> Then Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, No, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman. <coughs> Excuse me. For I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. 
Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your position that you have asked of him. She said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Then they arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned again to her house in Ramah. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And it came about in due time, after Hannah had conceived, that she gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. <clears throat> Excuse me. I titled this uh, lesson here, uh, Fruit from a Desert. Now, <clears throat> when you think of a desert, I know there's probably is some fruit in a desert, but think of a desert like if you ever, have you ever watched Lawrence of Arabia? Think of that kind of a desert. <laughs> there's just nothing there but blowing sand. And I think uh, it's kind of a metaphor for what was going on specifically with Hannah's womb. It was a desert. It was barren. And I think also by way of application is what's going on in the life of Israel. Israel, there was no fruit coming out of Israel as a whole. It was a barren time in the nation of Israel. And here we have Hannah coming on the scene in this, with a barren womb with a, with a, in, a, um, in a nation that has basically... Uh, turned away from God, and she is a, is a lady of faith. And she is trying to walk by faith, and she is asked of God here to provide a child for her, specifically a son. Now, a few questions that, might, that came up in my mind as I was reading um, through this text. One of them was, why are they worshiping in Shiloh? Okay, you think of Israel, you think of worship, you think of Jerusalem. Well, they were worshiping Shiloh because at the end of the conquest of, of Joshua's time, that's where they sent up their tent of meeting. That's where they sent up their, their tent uh, in which they would worship and do their sacrifices to God. That's in Joshua 18. Now, during this time where this tent was set up, uh, for the most part, it was the time of the judges. And <clears throat> it was probably... Um, <clears throat> God did eventually abandon this temple uh, in Psalm 78:60. He, the psalmist says exactly that, that that God abandoned this temple in Shiloh, and that during this, while the tent was in Shiloh, was basically the time of the judges. It was not a good time, um, and but but nonetheless, Hannah in faith went to this place where God was, where God's presence was, and prayed for this child. Now, she was barren. The interesting thing about this, this idea of barrenness is a theme throughout Scripture, especially the Old Testament. Um, all of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, each one of their wives, before they had their child, is, de- is described as barren. There's this idea, I think, that what God is doing in the wombs of these patriarchs is God's work. We see that especially with Abraham and Sarah, right? Sarah, God promised Abraham and Sarah a child, uh, and they waited, and they waited. They finally tried to take things into their own hands, <laughs> and Abraham gave, uh, went to his, his uh, maidservant, and uh, no, that wasn't the promised child, and God, in the midst of this barren womb of Sarah, being, what, 100 years old, or 90, 100, whatever she was, she was old, she <laughs> delivered, <laughs> delivered a baby through her. And so I think what we see here is we see this, it's, it's not unlike uh, if you read through when um, Israel was to go out into battle. You know, you think of the story of Gideon as the classic case. What did they do with Gideon? Well, you got too many. God says to Gideon, you got too many soldiers. You need to pare it down. Why did he do that? So God would get the glory. 
so God would get the glory. And I think we see the same thing here. God is about ready to raise up a prophet, prophet of Samuel. And it is going to be a godly prophet, a man after God's choosing. And God is going to use Samuel and the nation of Israel to try to turn them around. And so God is going to provide in this barren woman's womb this child. This idea of barrenness is also um, used as a metaphor for the nation of Israel. In the book of Galatians, uh, chapter 4, verse 27, is the specific reference. Um, Paul is explaining that the Gentiles are the offspring of the barren nation of Israel. In other words, Israel had rejected the Messiah, and he was going to use that, uh, that metaphor of barrenness in the nation of Israel to say, even though that you, there's no fruit coming from you that, from the nation of Israel, I'm going to provide the fruit, and it's going to come through the Gentiles. So Hannah's request as a barren woman was that she wanted a child. She wanted a son, and she was going to make a specific vow about this son. And this vow, as she, she describes it, is a razor will never come on his head. Now, as best as I can understand that, <clears throat> and I think most would agree, that what this is is a vow of a Nazarite. Have you ever heard of a vow of a Nazarite? Numbers chapter 6 gives a very detailed description of what a Nazarite is. Um, Samson was one of the famous Nazarites. Uh, John the Baptist, I believe, was a Nazarite. Some would say Paul was a Nazarite. I'm not so certain of that. But, but this, this vow of a Nazarite had some very specific things. And it was a way in which you could de- devote yourself in a special way to the Lord. And um, they had to do several things. Uh, they had to abstain from wine and strong drink, no vinegar, um, no grapes, no grape juice, no seeds, <laughs> no skin of the grapes. Uh, They were not to let a razor cut their head, uh, cut their hair, (laughs) Uh, and they shouldn't go near near a dead body, and 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 so they wouldn't be defiled. So, so what Hannah was doing was saying, God, if you give me a child, I'm going to give him right back to you, and that's exactly how the story happened. uh, Is Hannah gave this this child back to God. Now, when you think about Hannah and you think of, of this barrenness, it obviously, as, as the story clearly indicated, this was a real struggle for the life of Hannah. For any woman that is barren, especially in the time of the, the Israelites, uh, there, was a, uh, um, this, this was, there was no blessing there, so to speak. And, of course, she was being mocked by her rival, uh, Paniah. And uh, so this was a time of, of pain and suffering in the life of Hannah, no doubt. And I think, though, uh, if, you, if you read 1 Samuel chapter 2, the first part of that is, is Hannah's song and her response back to this whole situation. You can see that um, there was tremendous joy. There was tremendous uh, uh, worship of God for what he provided. And I think a lot of that was due, <clears throat> certainly due to be, of the struggle and the pain and suffering that she suffered. And, you know, this idea of pain and suffering... You know, it's all over the place. You don't have to look far for pain and suffering. Um, we have it each in our own lives. I know, you know, one of the times in my life where pain and suffering seemed to be 
it was a real struggle for me. I had a job one time that just working tremendous hours. I mean, up to 100 hours a week, that type of thing. It, it was a real, real trouble time. And then to top it off, then you, uh, you go to cash your paycheck and it doesn't cash. <laughs> That's not a good deal. <laughs> That's, and then your insurance get canceled. You know, we all have pain and struggle. You know, that's just a minor thing, I'm sure, that what many of you have been through. Um, but it's those times, I think, that if we don't go through those times, sometimes when the joy and the times where God does provide blessing, sometimes we might miss that. We might not totally uh, uh, have a good appreciation for that blessing. Certainly Hannah did uh, for the, the blessing of the child that God gave her. So as we look... <clears throat> <clears throat> at the text of this story, and we understand the story, it's a pretty, pretty straightforward story. How then do we apply it? How do we look at uh, what, is, what is God saying to us? What is God, um, God's word? How do we take that, this story and apply it? I, I think this, the, the thing that comes to my mind in this story is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. And I think in three specific areas, um, two specific from the story, the one being... <clears throat> that God is sovereign over human life. God is sovereign over human life. And let's talk about that just a little bit. Um, you know, <clears throat> when you think about the idea of life, I'm a little, I suppose, strange sometimes when I think about these things. I remember sitting in a high school biology class, and you go through all the different functions of the cells and what life is. But the question that always haunted me, so to speak, is, okay, you can describe, scientist, what the heart is doing on how it beats, but the question science can never answer is, why is the heart beating? Why is, why is there life? And I think it's the same thing when you look at Hannah or any woman when it comes to being pregnant or coming with child. You know, we think we might have some control over that, <laughs> but in all honesty, when it really comes down to it, it is God that is sovereign over human life. You know, in, in, in modern day science, we have really broken up the stages of, the, of, of life and the baby. We say, okay, well, you, you have a zygote, then you have an embryo, then you have a fetus, and then finally when it's outside the womb, we'll start calling it a baby. Well, <clears throat> you know, we don't see any of that kind of, of breakdown, of course, in Scripture. But what we do see is the writers of scripture seeing life as being from the from the mold, inside the womb psalm 139 we're going to read that towards the end i mean how can you read psalm 139 and not see that there is life inside that womb and that life is 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 not is more than simply simply a fetus so to speak um <clears throat> and i think a lot of this comes from let me give you a contrary view of of life than the the sovereignty of god view <clears throat> and that would be <clears throat> excuse me the evolutionary model we've been talking about in in as a, as a, in genesis if you have a view of life that is just it's a chaotic random thing um you're going to come to the conclusion like somebody something like a peter singer and i'm going to read this for you because it's really almost too hard to believe if i just told you have you ever heard of peter singer Peter Singer is a professor, I think he's still at Princeton, and he has some very radical views about life. And I would suggest that what he is doing is he is really saying man is sovereign over life. 
Let me just read this. This is a portion of, of his writings. He says, The central argument against abortion may be like this. It is wrong to kill an innocent human being. A human fetus, is, and I'm using their terms, a human fetus is an innocent human being. Therefore, it is wrong to kill a human fetus. Okay? I'd put the word baby instead of fetus, but basically good logical argument. Here's what he says, and this is it in a nutshell. Those who wish to deny the fetus a right to life may be a strong, on stronger ground if they challenge the first rather than the second premise of the argument set from above. In other words, what he is saying is, is it really wrong? In some cases, it's not really wrong to kill an innocent human. Thank you very much. It is not wrong to kill an innocent human. Now, I would suggest to you that that is somebody who thinks that they are sovereign over life. And, and that is why he views things like, I think up to, he believes like up to a year you should still be able to kill, a parent should be allowed to kill their child. God is sovereign over human life. And a part of life, of course, is death. And uh, the sovereignty of God in, in our lives, you know, if death hasn't found you yet, or your family, it will. You know, I remember the first time it found my family. Uh, it was 1988, September 30th, and we get a phone call, my wife, Ravon, and I did, and uh, about midnight, and my brother-in-law and my nephew were killed in a plane crash. And all of a sudden, <laughs> you know, what is it that, that we do in times of death, when life comes to an end, when the sovereignty of God's, when God is sovereign over life, yes, we believe that, but now it's time for life to end, at least on this earth. And that was a very difficult time. I'm sure some of you have experienced the same thing, probably, probably much more difficult things. And I'll tell you the thing that has sustained through that. You know, what, do we, what does everybody ask? You know, why, why, why? I don't know. I don't know. You know, sometimes you can see little pieces, you know. Why? I don't know. But what I cling to and what I suggest that, that we must cling to, and the only thing that we can cling to is the character of God. And the character of God is what we see in stories like this. We see how the character of God took this unassuming young lady who had a prayer of faith and he chose to use her to bring forth Samuel, a prophet, for Israel. And, and I would say, suggest that as we think about the sovereignty of life, we can't think about life without death. And we, we, must, not, we must not forget that he is sovereign over the time of our, our death and the death of our loved ones as well. And... Um, Easier said than done, certainly, but it's what we are, we are called. <clears throat> so, number one, God is sovereign over life. Number two, God is sovereign over the nation of Israel. I think we see that from this story. And I think, you know, sometimes you look and, you know, we've been working uh, in Sunday school on the book of Revelation. And, you know, when we think about the book of Revelation, we think about Israel, we think about the end of the world. There's all kinds of things that come to mind. And, and God, and we look at the events of the Middle East, you know, there's all, there's all kinds of, of, of things happening over there, of course. But I think what we see by way of application from this story is that God is sovereign over Israel. God has, 
back to the time of Abraham, God had promised to the nation of Israel that he was going to give them a land and that they were going to possess it and that God was going to be their God and the people were, were going to worship and uh, live in, um, under the God's authority. And I, I personally don't believe that has happened in an ultimate perspective as of yet. We get pieces of it in like the book of Joshua, but it's something yet to happen. God is going to sovereignly work still in the nation of Israel. Let me read a passage uh, from Romans. This is from Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 28. And Paul in the book of Romans, at least in this section, I think, is trying to explain to the Gentile, this Gentile and Roman, or Gentile and Jewish um, differences and distinctions and also similarities. But listen to these words. It says, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them. When I take away their sins, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. I do not believe God is done with Israel. I think God has yet has some promises to fulfill. He has some work to do in the nation of Israel. And we need to continue to pray, as someone once told me, to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. <laughs> because the peace of Jerusalem is going to come when Jesus Christ comes back and sits on the throne and reigns over the nation of Israel. So no matter how things look as far as the nation of Israel is concerned, God is still sovereignly working. He's still going to, his plan is still going to come about. And thirdly, by way of application, God is sovereign over each one of our lives. God is sovereign over each one of our lives. You know, sometimes when we look at our lives, at least I do, maybe you don't, but to me, <clears throat> I, I like to, you just want to know what's going to happen sometimes. You want to know what's going to happen in a situation or wish you could change the past or whatever. But life, I think, is a lot like a cartoon, okay? <laughs> Let me <clears throat> try to flesh this out a little bit. With a cartoon, what do you do? You have all the, the old-fashioned way anyway, not the high-tech way. You have all these little drawings and you piece them together and you, you, know, you flip them or whatever and they have motion to them. And I think in our lives, what we basically see is one little piece, one little drawing of our life. And we can't always know, what we, we don't know, <laughs> how God is going to work in our life. And um, again, I think it comes back to trusting in the character of God. I, I go back to my experience in college, um, when I, that my first um, evening there in college. It was just, it was miserable. But yet, out of that experience, God had something else planned. He had a sovereign plan. And not more than a few days later, then I began to get the friendship with the gentleman with Campus Crusade for Christ, like I was telling you, and then eventually led to the, to the point in time where I heard this message about being old, rich, and mediocre. And that really struck a chord with me. So there, there's a sovereign plan, and sometimes we just don't see it. And we need to be patient, and that's not always easy. <laughs> we don't always see how things unfold. And I think when we think about uh, the sovereignty of God, we also have to remember that the story doesn't always turn out the way we want it to. 
You know, in this case, Hannah prayed, and God honored, honored this prayer and gave her, her the son. But sometimes the answers are no. Sometimes, sometimes the sovereignty of God and our wishes and wills, they don't mesh. They don't, they, they're not the same. And, of course, our, our proper response to that is to, to humbly come before God and say, not my will but thine be done. So, how do we make sense out of the, this world? I think that um, when, you, when I read stories like this, when I, and, and you see what's happened in the past before this time period, and you see what happens in the future, and you see what's even going to happen in the far future, there, you realize there is a divine plan unfolding. There is a divine plan. Think about when you, have, when you understand that there is some purpose and plan to this world, it gives us as individuals purpose and meaning in our life. You know, those who, who look at, have a chaotic view of this world that think the, the world came out of, out of nothing by no one. It's just every man for themselves. It's hopelessness. It's meaninglessness. And I think we're seeing the, the fruits of that, those bad ideas in the lives of people today. <clears throat> I want to read, and you can turn with me if you will, Psalm 139. This is my favorite psalm. First time I ever heard this read was a Michael W. Smith concert a long time ago. <laughs> and I heard Michael W. Smith quote this, and it's, it's been one of my favorite psalms since. But I want to read just the first 18 verses. And think about the idea of, of God and, and the sovereignty of God and His divine plan for, the, for you and for this world. O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even, even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day, darkness and light are alike to you. For you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. We see life in slices, a moment at a time. God is not bound in this way. He sees all things at the same moment. We may not be able to see how God is going to use a present trial in our life to bring about His goodwill, but we can be sure that He will. This is one of the things studying the Old Testament that helps us see. We can see how God works over the course of time, even thousands of years. It is His will and power that brought forth fruit from Hannah's desert of a womb and as is the Lord who will bring fruit out of the desert faith of Israel. And to God be the glory.